0: I mean, there's, like, no messaging. It's like they say a prescribed burn is going on today. Don't call us because there's smoke in the air. That's about all the messaging. Like, okay, maybe it's an opportunity to do really cool science shit. Like, that would be awesome. I don't know. Like, versus JPL, I get messages about discovering the universe. You know, I could go up to Mount Wilson and do all these tours of this really wonderful stuff that's all about this, like, amazing, you know, the literal discovery of the universe or whatever, and, like... That kind of thing is really cool. Like it's like a trip out to go do that. And I know Harold Biswell back in the 50s or whatever used to bring people out and do burns like in front of them on a small scale. And I think it changed – it seemed to have changed minds as he did that. And so like I would have loved growing up in California as like a California school kid to go out and get to watch a little bit of a bird like – you know, that would have been so cool and it would have changed my perspective on it.
1: Hey folks, what's happening? Welcome to your forest. My name is Matthew Christoph. And on this podcast, we talk about the environment and the science of sustainability. Today's episode is all about fire, but it's a little bit different this time. It's more of a living with fire, more of a how do we thrive with fire? How do we feel about fire? This kind of stuff. And it, it was a really, really interesting conversation for me. I got to speak to science writer and journalist, Jacob Margolis, who has created a show called The Big Burn. And it's from l a s studios and it's a it's a really interesting show. It's a deep dive into personal stories that illuminate the history of how we got here, why we keep screwing things up, and what we can do to survive and maybe even thrive while the world around us burns uh at least that's what it says on the <laughs> on the podcast show and it's a really interesting podcast that has starts at the beginning of You know how did we get here? Uh, How do we feel about this? How do we learn to live with this? They call it a bit of a survival guide. Um, So it gives. There's a few episodes where it gives some pretty awesome, you know, tips and tricks and 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 ways to prepare yourself for these eventualities. And speaking to Jacob was awesome because he's someone who went into this investigation into wildfire as a journalist, someone who doesn't have expertise in fire. And he learned about it along the way and created this show that I think really helps people follow along. Like you could give this show to anybody and they could start to understand fire and how we got here. And it's based in California, so he talks a lot about California. But realistically, these concepts are – they're good for pretty much anywhere that is in this situation of more severe and intense fire. So, uh yeah, a great show. I really got to dive deep into Jacob and to his – his motivations and his inspirations for doing this and I, I wanted to talk to him a lot about science reporting and science writing and and where we think we're getting the message wrong with wildfire and how come the public isn't able to digest this in a way that we hope to be able to do, right? So yeah, it was a great episode. I can't wait to share it with you. Uh Sponsors, we have two sponsors for 2022. Wes Fraser is the number one, and without them, this would not be possible. So thank you, Wes Fraser, for your support this year, and can't wait to do it again next year. And uh Greenlink Forestry is the other sponsor. Without them, again, wouldn't be possible. Been with me since the beginning, and I can't thank them enough. Thank you, Greenlink. And yeah, this is the last one for 2022. Uh Next year, we're going to do things a little bit differently. I usually do release an episode every three weeks. Uh Going forward, it's going to be once a month. That's all I got, Uh the energy, time, and – Ability to mentally cope with. <laughs> so that's what's going to be. I think the third Wednesday of every month, it's going to be. So starting in January, that's what it'll be. And I hope to bring you, uh, you know, more interesting, more learned, more fascinating content with that different schedule. So thank you very much for listening for 2022. And, uh, yeah, without any other messing around, here is Jacob Margolis on his podcast, The Big Burn and what he learned. During his investigation. Here we go. Yeah, you're a science journalist, and yeah, you don't really have the background in specifically in fire, environmental management, that kind of thing. So, Mm -hmm. I wanted to know why this topic, why such a deep dive. You know, how did this get on your radar?
0: Yeah. I mean, I love being a science journalist because I get to really dive deep into things that I find to be very interesting. And so before fire, I covered space uh, and space exploration, which was really fun, not nearly as depressing as climate change, which I shifted to. I covered earthquakes (laughs) um, and I generally tend towards disasters at this point uh, and climate change. And so with fire, I mean, it was really – it was really – that in 2017 everything started to kind of shift here in California. And it, the fire experts will say 2015, I say for the general public and for people like myself 2017 because that's when we really like saw what happened in the Tubbs Fire in Northern California where, mm-hmm. you know, entire neighborhoods were burned down and this was a, a violent, destructive, deadly fire. And then after right after that In L.A., we got hit by the Thomas Fire, and the Thomas Fire became the biggest fire on record for California, and it burned into January. And I looked back at some articles that I wrote around that time – And I was very focused on earthquakes at that point. But one of my articles upon returning to kind of like science reporting in the newsroom was a conversation with a very well-known climate scientist, Daniel Swain, out of UCLA. And I was asking him, like, is this normal? And so Mm. since that from that point, you know, I've spent a lot of time just trying to unpack Uh, you know, the context for a lot of the really scary stuff that we're facing and my ultimate hope I'm driven one by, and with all this, I'm driven by my own personal interest and why we keep getting inundated with smoke again and again and again with also like, I would really like to help people. And in my opinion, knowledge about this stuff, it makes it a little less scary you know, mm-hmm. some things like climate change, it makes it even more scary in some ways because you see how how intensely bad things look. But when it comes to fires, once you start to understand the nuance, you're like, oh, like there's good fire out there. Oh, OK. There's like yeah. this kind of weather begets this kind of fire and like, oh, I can kind of plan for this. And I think that knowledge, knowledge, knowledge is power. And I, that's kind of what drives me at this point also. So it's both of those things, personal interests and hopefully helping people. I yeah. hope people get helped.
1: We 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 all hope that, right? We hope what we yeah. put out there in the world is is helpful and yeah, <laughs> gives somebody a hand for sure. So, I think yeah, like I mentioned prior to recording here, I think I the main reason I was attracted to this conversation was well, first of all, the storytelling you did in your podcast The Big Burn was uh well, the storytelling and science journalism that you did in there was impeccable. Like I said, I'm always Thank looking you. for um where journalists are missing something in the science when we're doing this kind of stuff, just because it's, that's not their expertise and it's not their fault. They're not doing it on purpose, but you can't always catch everything. And sometimes that can lead to misinterpretations of things. Um, but I never found any of that in all 10 episodes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I was really, really happy to see that. And what I wanted to talk to you about is, you know, your journey through this and then science communication and that kind of thing. So I think I want to know a little bit about if you think back, can you paint a picture of your concept of fire pre this investigation? Mm-hmm. Um and maybe how you think that started to or I'm sure it's changed a lot, obviously, but I want yeah. to kind of know what it was going into it and how and, and what triggered the the change.
0: Uh, mostly being terrified. Mostly right. being anxious about it. I would say my main feeling about fire prior to this show was one of just being kind of scared and being upset by it. Um, And I can give some sort of context for that. And it's because I live in Los Angeles in the San Fernando Valley and, you know, here in Southern California. And I, I grew up here and fires and smoke were never this bad. And what happened was I have little kids and I know how bad because I've talked to people about the studies behind like the impact of wildfire smoke on health. I know how bad it can be for little babies, especially in little kids and really older people, a all of us. And we just could not keep the smoke year after year, could not keep the smoke out of our house. Mm. And I had this moment during the pandemic in like 2020 in the fall Where I'm sitting in my house and it's hot. And like, you know, September here, it's like 100 plus degrees. Mm -hmm. And we've got all this smoke coming in the house from like the Bobcat fire, which was burning over near like Griffith Park. I think this was September. I think it was that fire. I'm sorry if I'm (laughs) conflating some different fires. There's been a lot of them. But I just remember sitting in my living room and being like completely despondent. Like I can't keep my kids safe. I feel really sick from breathing in smoke for all this time. A lot of us do. And then all of a sudden it would be like the next fire comes and the next fire comes. And even if the one near you gets put out, then there's one in Northern California that's sending smoke down here because smoke can travel thousands of miles. Mm -hmm. And so that was kind of all my context for fire prior to this show. And Mm -hmm. I still have those feelings of discomfort. But since then, a couple things have happened. One is that I have prepared appropriately. So I've spent time weatherizing my home. I've spent time, which sounds silly to people that live around like with snow and stuff, but here, like there's no weather, right? We never rains. It doesn't (laughs) snow. It's like, you know, so it's just wind and so, and heat. And so I spent time weatherizing my home. I bought a lot of air purifiers and like it, that started to empower me a bit and make me feel like, okay, even if it's smoky outside, I know we'll be okay. And here my kids will be safe. Um, and like at the very least we have that right and then when i started the project i really wanted to understand is it as bad as i feel it is and what are the different pieces of this big puzzle like how can we start to approach this to kind of improve the problem and why where are we failing to improve the problem and yes. so i really that comes i think a lot of stories for journalists come from your own personal desire to figure something out and this is such a big problem and such a big issue that impacts so many people around the world and it's only getting worse in a lot of spots that um, I also knew it would be a good story. So yeah. when I got to dive into it, I was taken aback again by how much nuance there was by the different understandings and experiences with fire. And it gave me hope in some ways. It left me more de- despondent in others. But um, yeah, I I'm... I feel more comfortable now than I did prior to doing this show.
1: Yeah. That's awesome. Well, that's good. That's good. Yeah, and that's that's kind of what I was looking for, right? Is um that's kind of the gist that I get from people especially in California where it is like you do have so much fire, right? Um like yeah. Alberta, BC, Canada, we have a lot of fire, but they tend to be kind of one and done. Um for a bit, right? Because it's it, there's kind of big <laughs> it's, it's crown never fires. Never one
0: and done here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you guys,
1: it's just a different, totally different climate, right? And so, yeah. it's, 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 it's. So I wanted to know from a public perspective, you know, what are what are people's feelings from a place like, place like California, where it's just everybody's talking about it right now, right? And like we're talking about it in Alberta, in Canada, but uh, I feel like it's so regular in California that. The mindsets must be different. There must be a lot more fear, a lot more terror, a lot more what happens, especially when, you know, annually you have communities burning, right? Um, and we're having that in Canada as well, but I don't think not to the degree and to the extent that, that really California is getting it on a regular basis. And so I, I wanted to know, it's interesting to hear you say that in some ways you were feeling a little more, Doom, <laughs> but also <laughs> yeah. feeling a little more clear. And I think that's I think that's what brought me to this this idea, this story, right? Is that I'm trying to paint a picture in people's minds of how should they feel about mm-hmm. fire, right? Because I think you're right, it is this balance. Yeah.
0: So I think it I think it would help listeners, especially if I gave some sort of context for like the environment here and, and where we live, um, where sure. I live down here Please. especially. Yeah. Our fire season Regardless of pretty much regardless of climate change, just like California dries out, you know, come August, September, especially where I live in Southern California Mm. and the Santa Ana winds, which are these really strong winds that flow from the east out towards the ocean start in late September, early October. We just basically have to hold on until those, either the Santa Ana winds come to an end, which doesn't happen until April, Mm. or we get some rain. And so fire season has generally historically been kind of like September for us here until kind of like November, maybe early December. Okay. Now, because it's been so dry and those winds still keep coming, we're having fires burn into January, February, March. And the thing about the Santa Ana winds is that they're unbelievably strong a lot of the time. And they push fire really, really, really fast. Mm-hmm. And so here where I live in Southern California, in the San Fernando Valley, it's a giant bowl. And these winds will just slam into the basically the rim of that bowl. And a couple of years ago, for instance, we had the Woolsey fire, which started out in Chatsworth. Which, for those of you who have ever watched old Star Trek movies or uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood by Quentin Tarantino, where they had some of those like ranch, uh, ranch shots and stuff, that's kind of like out in the Chatsworth right. area. It's very dry, kind of uh, chaparral, deserty kind of stuff. Yeah. Anyway, a fire starts there, and all of a sudden you have the Santa Ana winds. That thing's going to tear all the way along the rim of this valley that is home to mil—like I think it's over a million people. It might be millions of people. And keep going. And when those winds show up and that fire gets going, any community between the start of the fire and whatever the end is, is is likely to burn. Firefighters can't stop it mm-hmm. as long as those winds are there. And so for us here, we just know as soon as, if you're paying attention, you know, as soon as those winds start and it's dry and wind and rain hasn't shown up, that we could see, like we did with the Wolsey fire a few years ago, it burned from Chatsworth all the way down. It didn't stop till it hit the ocean. Mm. And that's really, really scary. Yeah. And so I think that there's this feeling, very much this feeling of like those fires can happen anytime during this period of year. Yeah. This period of the year. Yeah. Um. And most people don't prepare, I would say. But, yeah. you know, uh people rebuild in the same place and that's a whole other discussion. But, yeah, it's kind of yeah. – it's why – So that's sort of why it's very present in our minds, I would say. But it's gotten especially bad the past few years. What I would say since 2017, when the Thomas fire hit, biggest fire in California history at the time, quickly usurped by many other fires that followed it. (laughs) But it – just began like – yeah, it, we had a lot of years of like not fires like that uh, that would only come along once in a while and now it feels like they hit all the time. And Just a few years ago, we had one like right along the hills out my window mm-hmm. and that – I mean we were inundated. Our, our house wasn't going to burn down but we were inundated with smoke for weeks and weeks it felt like um, mm-hmm. and that's really hard to live through too.
1: Yeah, no, it, and I think I'm just trying to. I think that was good because I'm trying to paint a picture of what's going on down there and what kind of motivated you to tell this story, right? Yeah. And because the, the questions I want to get to are, are stuff around like science communication and, and storytelling in science, yeah. right? Because I think that's one where like scientists and researchers, um, they they shy away from telling the story, right? They they stick to the facts because they don't want to mm-hmm. water down the facts. They don't want to water down the research. They want to stick to not being misunderstood, right? But that makes for a boring story. (laughs) And nobody reads that, I will
0: say it depends. Like, the thing is, unless you have kind of a beginning, a middle, and end, unless you have some sort of really heavy stakes, like, people are just generally not gonna kind of stick along, like, stick with you for 10 episodes. And that was a discussion for every single one of the episodes we did. So in episode two, we talk about um, fires threatening giant sequoias. And... In my mind, it was absolutely enough of a hook to say, look, we stand to lose all of these forests that we have come to love, including these giant sequoias. They will be type converted into other things. They Mm. will not recover. We will not have them, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I work with colleagues who are not in the science space, not in the fire space, climate space, who said, that doesn't really do it for me.
1: Mm. And
0: so we really had to work on And it was a lot of negotiation back and forth and floating different ideas. What is that thing that is going to hook that person that hasn't been to a Redwood visit giant, excuse me, who who hasn't been to visit a giant Sequoia, who doesn't really love the mountains, who doesn't really care about nature. I had people tell me (laughs) like, I don't really care about trees. That to me is like unfathomable personally. I'm like, I care about a lot of this stuff and find it really interesting. And, but for a lot of people, they don't. And so you have to meet people where they're at and- Mm. What you'll hear in a lot of the episodes is this move towards telling my own personal story or the personal stories of other people. And what that lets you do in a narrative kind of context is it 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 gives people something to latch on to, not kind of bigger ideas about what is nature and like saving nature and stuff like that. And it's mm-hmm. just easier for a lot of people to process, myself included. You know, if it's a mm-hmm. topic I don't care about, I kind of want to know what makes it – what what's going to keep me around. And that's right. something that we constantly – constantly asked and debated and had a tough time with. And mm-hmm. I think every storyteller probably does. However, there are some stories that drop into your lap and when it does, you're like, oh God, thank you. And you're like, I know exactly <laughs> yeah. what the lead is. I know exactly where we're going with this. And yeah. also it's going to help us tell the story in a really important way that will result in some sort of big takeaway, which is re- always really nice.
1: Yeah. No, absolutely. And I think I think that was kind of the the point I wanted to get to. And I appreciate you getting there so quickly. Because it was yeah. it was that's the point I think is that people know that like fires are dangerous and climate change is is kind of making things worse and that there's more people in the landscape that's making things worse, but Mm -hmm. they don't know where to go from there. They're kind of lost with that information. I don't know where to go from there.
0: I got to be honest. Like that's what this whole podcast was. Like, I don't know where to go from this place of just fear. And like, uh, I don't think a lot of people really do.
1: Right. But I think, I think with your, with your, with the show though, you, you managed to tell that story in a very clear, concise way. It showed a lot of appreciation mm-hmm. for the nuance, for the work that does go in, for the Thank amount of, you know, understanding you have to have to, you know, light a prescribed burn and have that go well yeah. or, or a cultural burn for that matter. Um, and so you, I felt when I was listening to it, it brought in a lot of, um, appreciation and respect for the people doing the work. Um, but also it did paint a great picture of how big of a problem this is yeah. and how, how truly all encompassing it is. And it's true. I think it's true pretty much globally, anywhere where there's, there's lots of fire in the landscape. And so uh, the the point of telling this story with science, I think is important, right?
0: Well, so you, you mentioned prescribed burning and Mm. we really get at it over across a series of episodes. And, Mm initially in episode two it was especially we had to you have to consider you're introducing people even to the idea of like good fire which if i'm talking yes. to a scientist i'm not going to say good fire because i i understand it's not like you know you're not putting fire's not binary it's uh, you yeah. know <laughs> all that kind of stuff but i need but we need to bring it to a place where like in a normal conversation with a normal not scientisty person i would say good fire or bad fire at a party or whatever yes the thing that You'll hear in episode four in particular, which is when I go out on a prescribed burn, mm-hmm. that was the easiest episode to write because mm-hmm. there was action. There was, there were really phenomenal people who explained stuff really clearly. Mm-hmm. If you could feel the stakes, you could just feel all of this. You could feel my own personal journey, which was very genuine through that whole thing. It mm-hmm. essentially wrote itself. And there was just yeah. like – it was very clear what the through line was going to be. Mm-hmm. And I think that made – the reason I bring that up is because it made it easier for people to grab on to, relate to, listen to. And what I heard from a lot of people after the episode aired is that like why aren't we doing more of this? And that was kind of the point of it, right? That was the point of like, okay, well, why aren't we getting to a point where this – if this isn't a big scary thing, then, then why aren't we doing this more often in more places? And of course it's supremely complicated. And we didn't answer that in that episode. It was the next one a little bit, you know, but, um, yeah, it's, uh, it also helps when you have like really, really good people willing to chat with you. And I, and I very much had very, very good people willing to chat with me.
1: Good people are key. Absolutely. No, without a doubt. And I think I think that paints a good picture I think I, I kind of want to paint a picture we should we should talk about quickly just so we can have the rest of this conversation about um I'll let you do it. I've done it quite a few times in this podcast, so don't feel you need to do to go into too much depth, but just a general overview of the situation we're in right because some people may not understand why why are we in this situation where there is more fire in the landscape? why is the fire that exists now more dangerous, harder to control um, mm-hmm. what how did we get here?
0: Yeah, so it's a really, it's a really like heart wrenching history, actually. And I would say that you can look at tree ring records and see that lots of fuel buildup began in our forests, prob like around eight, the mid eighteen hundreds or so, and that's when the gold rush happened. It's when native people who had been actively managing the landscape in, like in in really complex ways for a really long time. Who understood the landscape like next level, you know, and integrated it into daily life, spiritual practice, all this kind of stuff. And I, I cannot speak for them. This is only what, you know, obviously. Yeah. And I think that we should, we should have all of those folks, especially from California on, who are really good talkers on all this. But basically what you had after was genocide following the gold rush or during and following the gold rush. And so you had the exclusion of fire on land across, especially in the forests uh, here in California. And what you saw by the late 1800s was a buildup of fuel. And there were these letters coming in from people in places like Yosemite. um, I think it was like cavalrymen or people that were managing the land at the time that were like, hey, we used to be able to walk through these areas. The brush used to be clear. Now it's not. We can't really even pass through it. Like the Native Americans were doing burning. They were burning. They were pulling up shrub. They were doing doing their stuff. And now it's starting to look completely different. And there were people that were sounding the alarm at the time about fuel buildup and fire potential as well. Mm-hmm. And for a whole host of reasons, and we don't have to go into it, but basically the what it was called the light burning debate lost out by like the mid 1920s or so. Mm-hmm. And it's a really, you know, it, it's it's very much worth having someone on that specifically – that's specifically an expert in that period time period because it's a really and we didn't even get to get into it really deep in the podcast. I mm-hmm. think it's a really interesting discussion around like why we ultimately chose to pursue this. What is essentially just fire suppression for the past a hundred plus years, right? Yeah, and you get into really interesting discussions about the science of it and all that. Like people just pushing for a certain science as well as the uh, the financial motiv- motivations and all this kind of stuff. Anyway, mm-hmm. by Basically, by the 1960s or 70s, because we had built up this fire suppression apparatus that had been putting out fires all over the place in the forests, especially in Northern California, um, you just had a ton of fuel buildup and it was priming – it was just priming everything to burn down the line. They started to notice that and really – Harold Biswell, I don't know if you've talked about him at all in the show, but like – No. Harold Biswell and – And other academics started to talk about it and were like, hey, we should probably go out and do this. And there was a slow adoption of the idea of doing prescribed burning. um, But then it never – it remained in like the national parks but it never really took off in other places like with Cal Fire and the US Forest Service I would argue. And so – Basically, then you had climate change come along and heat everything up, and all of a sudden you have all this fuel, and you have climate change that's also desiccating a lot of these landscapes and a lot of these trees, and you have a lot of stuff ready to burn. I mean, that's the case in a lot of the forests here, and so now it's burning with such intensity, it's wiping everything clear, and you get high-severity fire, which I'm sure you've talked about ad nauseum in the show at different times. Here in Southern California, it's different. And it's not just Southern California. It's like chaparral. And chaparral ecosystems in particular and coastal sage scrub ecosystems here, it is different. Um, fire exclusion has been an issue. However, we have too much fire on a lot of these landscapes here. And that's mm. and so uh, what a scientist named John Keeley, who's a well-known guy with USGS, US Geological Survey, has found along with a lot of other folks is that – Basically, the fire return interval in a lot of these places uh, for the chaparral, like in this area where I live, mm. for some of these plants would be like 20 to 50 to 100 years, right? The typical – that would allow them to recover, to build up their seed banks, all that kind of stuff. We're get, They're getting hit with fire every like five years, 10 years and it's yeah. just wiping out seed banks. And so you're getting type conversion here as well. I mean, if you look out the hills out my window that got hit repeatedly, it's just grasses now. It used yeah. to be chaparral and stuff, and now it's just grasses. And so there's a variety of different reasons depending on where you are in the state. And I think that that was a big thing that I wanted to get at in this podcast is that like we clearly need a complete overhaul of how we handle fire in eco forested ecosystems, um, mm-hmm. especially here in, in the state of California when it comes to Southern California, the way we've chosen to build and how we choose to use the land and like what our ideals are, as mm. far as I can tell, the fire suppression apparatus is really what people want and what we would need to maintain our current state of things here.
1: Pretty much all of the exact same things that you talked about for California happen in the rest of North America as well. Right. Yeah. It started. It started with the with the genocide of of indigenous folks in North America, which they were doing, you know, "quote unquote" good fire on the landscape. Mm-hmm. Um. So you removed that fire, and then you know, with industry and agriculture and settlement comes fire suppression, and then with fire suppression comes more fuel buildup, and then climate change adds to that more opportunity for fire, longer fire seasons, hotter, drier winds, and you just have this perfect, you know powder keg and that's true i think of most of north america now but it also
0: wasn't just good fire with native americans or indigenous Mm. people in different places it was a completely different focus on what the landscape should be used for and how or the relationship with the landscape and that's something Mm. that i don't i would have liked to have gotten into more in the podcast and we signaled it in a couple places Mm. but i feel like um I feel like that's worth examining and our land use policies are worth examining in the face of in the face of all this as well. And we get at it a little bit at the end of episode five in my discussion with Frank Lake, um, who is a US I believe he's with USDA. And I think that is a bigger discussion that we need to be having, which are what is the land for and how do we treat it? And right. is brute forcing our way to this. Maintaining whatever we think this ideal is—is is that going to be the way? Uh, is that really the way forward? Or do we need to make major considerations as to how we treat not just forested, forested landscapes, but also, you know, uh, chaparral ecosystems and whatnot here?
1: Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and 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 funnily enough, I've actually spoken with Frank Lake before on, um, yeah. on on the Good Fire podcast that I mentioned to you earlier um, that I did with Dr. Amy. Carl Christensen. and um nice. and yeah and we talked about some of that stuff and we, but it's I think it's it's interesting to point out that it's the same it's the same things across all of North America right and that these mm-hmm. are all so it's the same concepts um and it's applied differently right to to every location but it's the same concepts going on and so it's 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 pretty much applicable to to anywhere you are so this concept of fire suppression and you talked a lot about um a cal fire specifically um being in California and how it's it's a fire suppression agency right and it's it's mm-hmm. it, that's what it that was it was built for and it does its job well um and with the recognition now in the last i don't know how many years how many decades but the recognition of the fact that fire suppression has been a contributor to the situation that we're in now which is you know more dangerous fires uh, what in your investigation what did you feel was the response of agencies like Cal Fire to that information right obviously they've probably been sitting with this information for a while that and they're trying to figure out how to deal with it because it's not like it's a simple like, mm-hmm. like I'm sure they recognize it. I'm not saying that they're neglecting it or anything like that I just want to know where you felt their their head was at when you talk to those people when that information comes up and and you know, where they're where they're going with that information.
0: Well, I think it really came about in the sixties and seventies the discussion about all of this. And Cal right. Fire, which I can speak to in particular, we talked to the former chief of Cal Fire, Ken Pimlot, mm-hmm. who I can't remember his exact years, but I think it was like two thousand and eight or ten until like fifteen or seventeen or something.
1: Okay. Anyway,
0: when we talked to him, basically Cal he said that Cal Fire had a vegetation treatment program did some burning in like the 80s and the 90s and then it just kind of fell to the wayside and i, I think the, the overwhelming feeling that i just generally get talking to people uh kind of in this world is that mm. a lot of it is you know some of its money a lot of it's i don't think anybody wants to do any harm but i also think you have a direct re- you have like a direct result fire is burning you put it out it looks good and I think right. it is it is good in a lot of cases when you save lives or you save homes or whatever, mm-hmm. and so that is a very easy thing to also like quantify, right? As yes. a as a performance metric, yep. I think it gets really complicated when you start to you know look at kind of the value of prescribed fire or good fire back on the land or letting certain fires burn or whatever. And my mm-hmm. understanding is the way that Ken framed it, and this is in episode five, he talks about it, saying basically when he came in it wasn't even on their radar. Like they were dealing with budget cuts after 2008. He's like, we were just trying to keep the lights on at that point. And um, it wasn't until a couple of chance meetings with some different uh, folks, like uh, different um, uh, Native American leaders, different uh, scientists. They're basically saying, Hey, we're like sitting on a powder keg here. We want to go do this burning, but you're making it like difficult for us to do it. He kind of knew, he said he kind of knew things had to change and thus began this kind of like he he says it's like turning an aircraft carrier and i i believe it i mean when you have an agency that's been doing one thing particularly i think well in a lot of cases right and like has built up this military level force to do this one big thing in particular um it's hard to start to integrate something that's hard to quantify uh and i think that but i think it's gotten so bad now that mm-hmm. everybody's looking for any kind of answer And now all of a sudden it's like now you're sitting down with the Frank Lakes. You're sitting down with the the Bill Trips and you're like, okay, please like help us figure this out. And, you know, what I heard was a lot of resentment from the Frank Lakes and the Bill Trips, a lot of frustration uh, because they've been talking about this for a long time, obviously. Uh, But it does seem that there is a bigger – I want to hope and it does seem that there is a bigger cultural shift towards getting it done more often. However, we have not seen the acres. The acres are not being done the yeah. way the level they need to be done. Yeah, and so you know remains to be seen what's going to happen because I also know it does take a while to kind of shift things. But regardless, things are going to burn. I mean, mm-hmm. they'll burn either way, right?
1: Yeah, it's just either either starts in a way that's controlled that you know what the ramifications yeah. are, you know what the forces are, or it starts from someone flicking a cigarette or a lightning strike or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <It's> <laughs> yeah. Happen. No, it's true. Yeah. And so that's interesting. I think, and I think that's similar again across North America, right? Like, I think, um, I know here in Canada, there's been a lot of discussion, right? About, okay, how do we start doing more prescribed fire? How do we start doing more mechanical thinning and mechanical prep to try and, you know, mm-hmm. around, around communities and do fire smart or fire wise in the states, right? And, um, but again, because it's fire, because it's a destructive force at times, there's always that fear, right? And there's always that. And it's again, like you said, well, things
0: can go wrong. Like it's worth things acknowledging go, yeah. things can absolutely go wrong. They rarely yes. do, but they can. But and they we can. don't have a robust enough system, at least here in California to help take care of it when it does mm-hmm. go wrong. And for us to then say, okay, we understand it went wrong. We need to continue. This as a big part of the mission. Let's keep moving forward. We yep. don't have that yet. I think people are building it, Yeah, but we don't have it yet.
1: And and that was kind of what I was getting at. Is I was wondering where their heads were at. If 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 there's a if if there is an acknowledgement of okay, we need to obviously we need to keep suppressing fires because it's <laughs> it's kind of at a point where you can't just let it go, right? Um, but it depends
0: we, where, but yeah,
1: yeah. Well, in certain places, like right, like but like obviously around communities and that. Um, but my point is. We need to start adding more tools to the toolbox, like doing more prescribed yes. fire, like doing more yeah. mechanical prep, like doing more active engagement in the landscape, you know, pre pre ignition kind of thing, right? And so, and I think that's I wanted to know where, if if there's a true actual acknowledgement of that and action being taken on that, or if mm-hmm. it's still just words, if we're still just kind of just discussing it.
0: I mean, everybody. I... <laughs> I mean, this is something that we try to figure out when we're writing pieces too, right? It's yeah. like I don't think you have like an evil person sitting at the top of a tower, like twiddling their you know their fingers or whatever. But I do I do think it's I think there is a serious consideration at the very least. There is serious consideration of the change, and there is more money being put towards it. However, you talk to the advocates on the ground. Mm-hmm. And they are they, and this happens a lot, especially with advocates who have been talking about it for a while. They want things to move a lot faster, and of we'll course. tell you the exact reasons why it's not. Yeah, and you get yeah, and so I do think. I, I mean, I I don't think we have a choice. I think the shift is occurring, but mm-hmm. I am quite curious to see to at what scale and by like on what timetable it it is able to occur.
1: And yeah. And that's the same, that's the same thoughts that I hear from folks, right? Yeah. Especially from people in, in indigenous community that, you know, uh, fire practitioners and that stuff, like they're, yeah. it's, it's just a, like you, like you said, uh, of the, of Ken, I think it was, you said like moving an aircraft carrier, those big fire yeah. suppression agencies, it's, no matter how much your intention is to move that thing, it's slow going. Yeah. And, cause you gotta change the system. It's a systematic change. It's not just, hearts and minds, you actually have to change policy and change, you know, laws and that kind of stuff to move those things in the right direction. And there does seem to be genuine interest. Yeah. And that's what I've gathered as well. And again, I, I wasn't trying mm-hmm. to point fingers at at agencies or anything. It was more talking about the, the cultural shift of a mm-hmm. society, right? And, and how slow that shift might be and how difficult it is to change. And well, one of the interesting
0: things that I heard now that you bring that up also with cultural shift is like, there are also You have to also look at like the incentives for firefighters and I'd, I'd want to hear from more from firefighters around this because I had heard stuff like anecdotally but I think it'd be really interesting to see, you know, they don't necessarily make overtime on burns like burns doing prescribed burning. Prescribed burning shouldn't be all that exciting in the same way that fighting a fire is. Like fighting a right. fire is pretty exciting in a lot of ways. Yep. And so I think you also need to look at the incentives for the people that Go ahead and do that one, you need to look at the incentives, and two, like for Cal fire in particular, they have a very they have generally have a limited staff that is like supposed to be dedicated to like fuels management right, but that's that fuels management team gets pulled out to fight fire, and now all these people are fighting fire for eleven months out of the year, they're burnt out, and
1: mm-hmm. it's like
0: pun intended <laughs> I, I think the incentive structure needs to be talked about and worked on, you know like and yeah. so yeah. Which is why I think it's also worth having am continuing to have and expanding the discussion, especially around like what should Cal fire within this context be running for California around prescribed burning, and how do you go ahead and empower people outside of that traditional fire infrastructure to potentially take on some of this stuff right um and I think there's you know lena Quinn Davidson uh is a well known person within this world. she's an academic she's a, quite nice and spent a lot of time talking to you about all this. And I think is asking a lot of you know she's asking a lot of questions about this kind of stuff and I think those questions remain especially for Indigenous fire practitioners um, mm. you know I, I think that the role of Cal Fire or the role of the U.S. Forest Service if it comes down to them standing in the way I think you have a lot of very frustrated people on the ground that maybe aren't part of those traditional structures but still want to get this done and I don't think you're going to get it done without all the groups involved. And so, no. how do you empower some of those groups too safely? How do you back them up with liability? How do you go ahead and do all that? I I don't have answers for any of that. Like we no, talked no, no. about it a lot in the show, but it yeah. seems to be something that's getting worked out right now.
1: It does seem to be like decentralizing some of those decision structures is decentralizing it is is, is important, right? And it's yeah. So I have no idea. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I'm not suggesting you, on my you do. Pay grade, yeah. <laughs> so I, I did want to ask you about uh the nuance you mentioned it was the easiest one to do the episode where you talked about prescribed fire and 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 good fire and cultural fire um but I wanted to i, I you did such a really good job of explaining and giving examples for the nuance and the mm-hmm. amount of detail that goes into planning something like that and the amount of knowledge and experience that goes into applying good fire on the landscape mm-hmm. um I wanted to ask. Why did you feel it was important to go that in depth and, and that detail into how to do – I feel like it was, it was the one yeah. thing that that you specifically went into into specific detail and gave specific examples of why – of how difficult this is to do.
0: I, I know this might blow the minds of everybody in the fire community who has been doing prescribed burning since they like they were babies. But uh, the vast majority of the public, myself included – have no idea as to what goes what goes into it. Yeah. As far as I knew, I mean, I, I knew this wasn't the case, but generally, like, uh, I just had no idea what went into right. it. It's like, do you just right. go set something on fire when the weather's a certain way? Like, obviously not. But, and it sounds silly, <laughs> like, it might sound silly to a lot of the experts out there, but the general public has no idea. One, they don't know these things happen. And two, when they think about them, they have no idea of any of the nuance. And so you got to cover some of that nuance so people understand the process behind it, which yeah. then also, I think, speaks to the ultimate purpose of it and helps people mm-hmm. grasp the ultimate purpose and say, OK, like in my mind, I can now. All right. So we want to help the, the hazel burn straight the, like, or grow straighter. All right. That's uh, you know, there's an objective there and we can see that working out pretty well. Um, yeah. so I think it's good to go into that kind of stuff and also recognizing that it's like, it's a lot different depending on where you are, like what landscape you're on. Right. The objectives are different. Yeah. And I think that again, like an, a general audience can take nuance. People can, people want nuance. Uh, yes. You just, I don't know. I try not to talk down. I try to just explain <laughs> it the way that, cause I don't, I'm not an expert in any of this either yet until I like yeah. go through all these processes and. I'm learning along with everybody else, and I want people to feel the same moments of revelation that I have had throughout this whole process
1: and I think that 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 was evident right like it was very evident that you wanted to do this in the right way, and it was also very evident that you came from this a place of uh uh of ignorance and but also came ended up in a place of of knowledge where um you explained things in a way that uh i've had i don't know how many conversations about fire and prescribed burning like probably twenty. Um, that I've recorded, but I've never talked about the specifics of you know relative humidity and Yeah, but that's you know, also a storytelling
0: technique. That's right. like, don't you want to know some of those details? I love details like that.
1: Right. Know? And my, like, my mind's always further yeah, up, up in the sky. And I need to be I need to be thinking about okay, how do I pull people in using the detail and the complexity, right? And that was it was great. And I just I it was the first time I'd heard that in all the fire recordings that I've heard and done myself. So it was mm-hmm it was It was refreshing to hear because it was like' oh, that's what's missing is well, the appreciation you
0: know, like when you're someone like you know Margot Robbins and you can walk out there and you can like just look at this patch of land, you know the history, you have all this wonder all this wonderful context, you know exactly what it should be. Right. You know, and you can justify it like seven thousand different ways. You can do all this, <laughs> like that. To me, that gets my that gets me personally so excited to hear all of those little different pieces of just knowledge that have been built over all this time that I then get access to for that moment. And like, yes. I want to share that with the audience because again, it helps shape people's view of something. It goes more. It goes to a place of like. Oh, it's an art and a science, and like to me that's really cool like i yeah. I just really love that. I tripped out there were so many details I didn't include <laughs> that I wanted to include that the people I work with were like it's a little a little heavy on the details and I'm like
1: okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like fair enough,
0: fair enough you know but, yeah
1: yeah oh it was it was it was excellent like i i got i Thank have you. to I have to applaud you with the the, the way like I said before that the, the the concept of applying story to science communication is huge. And I think with that series, it just came out so clear and concise. And I think the things that you omitted and the things that you included made it easy to listen to and to follow along, which is, I Thank think, you. a lot of times where I struggle because I'm trying to weave these things together and I forget what other people don't know, right? And so I think it's important yeah. to, to to do those, to tie those things together very concisely and slowly, right? And it was so great.
0: what I'll say to anyone that's trying to communicate science is, and I have this too, There is a feeling of needing to kind of prove yourself and your bona fides to other people in the (laughs) academic field or when you're talking to scientists or fire folks. And to be honest with you, for us, it makes bad tape. Like for me, like I know this, I, I read all, I read all your publications about this thing. Like I went into the, every, like every little piece of them, I have it kind of memorized. Like I know all this stuff before I go in and I hang out with a Nate Stevenson out in the forest. Right. I'm a fan of his essentially by the point I get to talking to him. He's like, you know, an expert in giant sequoias, but that doesn't make good radio. It doesn't make good podcasts. It doesn't make good story because you need to have that moment of discovery. And it's a, they're genuine moments of discovery, but I've done my background research. But if you can go ahead and you're talking to a normal person and you just want them to like really grasp what you're talking about, you know, it's okay to be a little ignorant about it and to really kind of break it down to basics in a way that, just realize that like, and I don't think that, you know, I don't know if this is the case with you, but with a lot of science people or a lot of people in these worlds, like a lot of this, a lot of this stuff is really cool. It's really yeah. cool. And so like taking a moment to appreciate how cool it is also and like convey that through the story you're telling, like it's, yeah, like that's, I, it's my favorite part of the job. Um, mm. Although I do also like talking academic with people. That is fun yeah. sometimes, but it doesn't, again, it doesn't make good radio. It doesn't make yeah. good
1: podcast. For sure. Absolutely. No, and I think I definitely have that issue. I think there is always that in the back of your mind, like, all oh, right, people are listening to me talk right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> How do I sound like like I know what I'm talking about? And yeah, you're right. I think that's well, I think that's a good point, right? Pay that attention ego. to the
0: things that excite you though. That's what you yes. need to do is pay attention to that thing that, like, you know, you've seen it seven thousand times and so you're like, oh yeah, it happened again. And like that is your little moment of like the audience will feel that too. Yeah. For sure.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. No, and I, I felt that and I, and I enjoyed that. And even though I, I understood and knew most of the things you were talking about, it became, it was, it was nice to, I, I, it was like I was learning it for the first time. It was great. It was very, very That's cool. Awesome.
0: Thank you very um, much. I'm glad, I'm glad you felt that way. Thank
1: you. Yeah. So I, I, I want to dive back into public perception again. It's a good time to ask this question because we're talking about messaging. We're talking about pulling in the public into these ideas and, and concepts so that they can have good thoughts and, you know, educated thoughts on the subject when they go to vote or when they go to do whatever. Um, What do you see, what are we getting wrong when it comes to the messaging around fire and public perception? You know, like how, how do you think we can change our society's relationship with fire, and 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 kind of start anew. Like it's it's a big question, but it's <laughs> really easy question to answer. I know, uh, I know, I know, I know. But know I have to I ask did it Over it. ten
0: episodes, <laughs> I think it's but so hard. I think it's it so is. hard. I'm just giving you a hard time. I I think it's so hard. All good. It's it's, it's so hard. Mm-hmm. I but believe me, I I talked about it a lot, um, and I thought about it a lot, and mm. I think even introducing basic concepts like good fire is kind of the beginning. Yeah. And to me, I mean, hey, if you have any people that work in government that are listening, especially here in the states, like got to work on your mes- messaging around stuff like prescribed burning. Like it has to be like if we're talking narratives, yeah. A fire, and I talked to Stephen Pine a lot about this. Like mm-hmm. the fire, it's a perfect it's a perfect narrative. It's a perfect yeah. like war battle narrative. It's it's how do you beat that? In terms of it being just so compelling, the stakes being super high, it's fascinating. I use it in my storytelling all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, But the thing that makes like the good fire stuff interesting is it's not that. And you kind of got to find other ways to make like either with nuance or whatever to make it kind of interesting. I think that people don't even know there are other choices out there than the like war narrative. and. There's a reason why it works so well. And so figuring out other ways to introduce people to these cool, nuanced things that we can do, ways that we can save ourselves, ways that – they are very high stakes. These decisions we're making are very high stakes. Again, you need to introduce stakes and get people to buy in. You know, I think over time, you can start to shift shift the conversation. And I really think the – I don't know what what goes into the government uh, messaging programs. I know some folks who have done them and do a great job, but I think that um, I generally think that we could probably do a bit better. And I think they would generally <laughs> agree too. Like Smokey's is just negative. Like right. Smokey Bear is just negative. Smokey right. Bear is 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 looking good these days, and like you know is like uh, you know is doing its job, but. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe there needs to be a good fire Smokey Bear or maybe Smokey right. Bear needs to embrace good fire and we need a cartoon series of Smokey Bear talking about good fire <laughs> on stuff. I, I don't know. Like maybe we no, can figure out a creative – give Give me some IP, everybody, please. Uh, you know,
1: yeah. Give me a – Well, no, you're right because it's, yeah. it's been this war on fire, right? For the last yeah. 70, 80, 100 years, it's been a war on fire. How do we stop fire? Fire is the bad guy, right? How do we yeah. – and you're right. I think you're absolutely right. I think there needs to be a change in the narrative and not just – in the scientific and decision-making circles, but in the the public circles, right? In the public understanding yeah. and in and, and engaging people in that, and and I think that is one of the biggest. Like I know talking to um Amy, Amy Cardinal Christensen, who was my co-host on the Good Fire Show, she mm-hmm. always says that like she has young daughters that are I, I think you know two and a half and five or something like that, and she's like their entire life their concept of fire has been regenerative right and like yes it can, they they have but they understand at 5 years old or whatever that yeah, yeah this can be a problem but it's also like cuz she's burning all the time every year she's burning the grass around her home and she's doing stuff like that and she's like it's totally possible to have a different relationship with fire um from the beginning but until we start to actively change that narrative and actually start to I will just say, as a member of the general
0: public, how do I know any of this stuff? Right. Like, all of all of you fire folks that are listening get to do such cool things and have the training and have the gear and have all this stuff. And, like, getting to go out and do that Trex – I did a – you know, went out with Trex uh, on a Trex program. Like, just getting to do that there and observe was, was mind-blowing. And I think that having th- – I don't even know how you deal with this in terms of liability, but being able to go out on a burn in like, you know, in Angeles national forest nearby or something like that, like it really would shift a lot of, per- I think it would shift a lot of perspective. Now you have 10 million people in LA County. So it's a lot of, uh, it's a lot of trips out to do a burn, but maybe right. there needs to be more buy-in from local news media as well. Maybe there needs to be more, whatever the problem is again, Doing a burn is not nearly as exciting, I'm sorry, as is a car chase or a fast-moving fire. And so yeah. there needs to be creative messaging around it for folks that really want to promote this kind of thing. And I think yeah. it does begin with just getting journalists out on burns is what I would also say. Is mm-hmm. like, I, Or maybe I'm the only journalist. I, I know I'm not the only journalist. A lot of journalists find it cool. But um, yeah, it's a good experience. Oh.
1: I think you're right. I think you're right. It's just about getting because, like, all they all the public hears right now is you know they see the big flames and they they're breathing in the smoke and that's their relationship to fire. That's all of it. So how do you how do you convince them otherwise? And but I think it starts with that, right? And I think you're right. Like, it's I mean, there's like no messaging.
0: It's like they say a prescribed burn is going on today. Don't call us because there's smoke in the air. Right. It's about all the messaging. (laughs) Like, okay, maybe it's an opportunity to do really cool science shit. Like yeah. that would be awesome. <laughs> I don't know. Like JPL versus JPL, I get messages about the founding, like f- discovering the universe. I mean, I could go up to Mount Wilson and do all these tours of this really wonderful stuff. that's all about this like amazing, you know, th- the literal discovery of the universe or whatever. And like that kind of thing is really cool. Like it's like a trip mm. out to go do that. And I know Harold Biswell back in the fifties or whatever used to bring people out and do burns like in front of them on a small scale. And I think it changed – it seemed to have changed minds as th- he did that. And so like I would have loved growing up in California as like a California school kid to go out and get to watch a little bit of a bird. Like – Yeah. You know, that would have been so cool and it would have changed my perspective on it. Um Huge absolutely huge and you get to yeah. do that cool stuff like as a school kid right you go on like trips but like maybe there's a demonstration area they can build maybe there's whatever you know it doesn't always mm. have to be for you know proper scientific whatever research reasons maybe it's just appeal into the public and get yep. kids out there to actually see it because when you see it like in person it's so much more powerful than me watching a video Absolutely, it is it truly is
1: Oh, yeah, if you get to, you know, feel the heat and see the flames and see the absolutely. It's it's an adrenaline rush. And that's what gets people to remember it.
0: And it doesn't have to be as big of an adrenaline rush as I had out in the middle of the forest. Genuinely, it could be like it could be a research plot or like a demonstration plot somewhere. And you could grow the grasses that you're going to clear out or whatever. And Mm -hmm. like if you end up doing that and you're in California, please let me know. I would love to (laughs) see that. And I would love to see the public reaction to that. I think that'd be really cool.
1: Yeah. And I think you're right. I think that would start to change the way we think about it. Right. And, but, but this is why I brought you on, right? Was to, was to bring in that perspective of not being in the academia, not being in the work, not being a firefighter and, and just learning about this, you know, as an interested member of the public, essentially. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I think this is why these are insights that I think provide a little more context and a little more, a little more direction. For for people that might be listening, that maybe are in a place to start doing different messaging around around fire and how do we start changing our society's concepts of fire into into something that's more productive and less doom and gloom kind of thing, right?
0: Yeah, I think it's so. I think it's so hard. I think mm-hmm. you also have to have the prom. You have to show what the promise is, right? Which is why mm-hmm. the giant sequoia story is so good. The giant right. sequoia story being that basically, I think it was. I th- I think it was KNP complex. Basically, as soon as it arrived in giant forest, it kind of laid down. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons for that is because it had prescribed fire put on it for – it's had it for ages. Yeah. What what was interesting about that, the more I learned about it, is that like below the slope – like down slope from where giant forest is was an area that they basically hadn't – they just never burned. And like Mm -hmm. it burned with such high intensity, it destroyed everything as you'd expect. Um. But understanding, like this, is an episode too. If you want to go listen, but again, setting those stakes, understanding what is at what is at stake, and what we can do if this sort of thing is implemented, mm-hmm. I think is really, really, really important. Because just telling people, like, oh, we need more fire, or whatever. I don't want to be breathing smoke. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I don't. Yeah, like, the air quality is bad enough. So now you're going to be burning like year round. It's already burning year round. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and so, yeah. like, how do you go ahead and? show people that on the other side of these flames that we're intentionally setting is like promise. Yes. And I don't know. I think there's a lot of different storytelling kind of things you could do to approach that like Mm -hmm. and help get that across.
1: Yeah. But it's important that we do that, and it's. I think your your show is a good way to to begin that process. I think right, and and kind of get. I I I hope I hope it reaches out to millions of people and kind of changes (laughs) their perspective. I I hope so. 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 Yeah, but it but but I think it was uniquely because of your background that that story was told so clearly and concisely, and that Mm -hmm. because you were trying to answer your own questions, right, and you're coming at it from a place of. No real knowledge, and which is why it was so good. Um, so the, the, there's this concept that I talk about a lot in the show. We, we talk about the, you know, the concept of wilderness, and you, you'd explored the concept of wilderness a bit here, <laughs> right? In the show. Yeah. And it's, it's obviously another big, big one to talk about. Um, you brought up John Muir and the, and the concept of conservation and, um, yeah. the concept that, oh, we need to preserve this perfect natural thing. Um, like I found it interesting the way you brought it up, right? Was, John Muir, his role as a leading, inspiring, you know, the, the park conservation movement in the States, um, although he, he may have saved those, those places from, you know, commercial enterprise and that sort of thing, um, mm-hmm. they also removed, you know, removed the indigenous people from the area, removed the good fire that was happening in the area, removed any kind of human interaction that was happening prior. And he said, yeah, keep people out of here. People are the problem. Let's move on. But he was blinded by his own culture, right? He's blinded by his own understanding of what reality is and his own culture and experience kind of blinded him to it. And I, I wanted to know why you felt the need to bring in, to create that divide between the colonial mindset of nature and, you know, indigenous mindset of nature. And I wanted to know why why you thought that was important to bring into the story. I would say, one, it it inherently
0: interests me, but two – What we've been doing and how we approach our world and landscape management in a lot of ways and how we treat our world is not Mm -hmm. working. Yeah. Especially when it comes to climate change Mm -hmm. and a lot of these bigger problems that we're facing. And the question that I get from a lot of people when it comes to talking about climate change or fires or whatever is like, it's always framed as how do we adjust to keep things exactly the same way and continue on the same path we've been on. Ah, and there comes a point where I don't see a way forward personally with climate change, with these fires, all that kind of stuff, like Mm -hmm. in the way that we've been going. And so we need to be examining how we think about the world around us. And if you hear any hesitancy in my voice, because I'm still thinking about it a lot and I don't, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, yeah, I'm trying to process all of it too. And these ideas of, you know, this is kind of outside the scope of this podcast and the conversation, but certain ideas about consumption, growth, like I said, use of land, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, um, you know, those are discussions we need to be having.
1: Absolutely. I, well, I, I, it's important, I think. I don't think it is outside. I think it, it's it's well within because it's these are the things that led us to where we are now, right? It's our culture that led us to do the things that we've done. And it's important, I think. It's probably one of the hardest things in the world to do is to take yourself outside of your own culture. Like, taking yourself outside of your own perspective is one thing, right? Outside of, put, step into someone else's shoes, you can maybe kind of empathize a little bit. But to remove your, your entire concept of reality is created by your culture and to try to relate to people that, hey, that's one way of seeing the world. There's many more. Yeah. And that's a, that's the biggest shift I think. But I think when people are able to make that shift into, Appreciating and seeing that oh there is another way of doing this that may all, that that can also work or has worked or whatever um, it allows them to it opens up the oppor- opportunity a lot more I think right it opens up your mind to the the potential and I think um so I, th- I, th- I think it was I think it was a good point to bring up and that you're just like hey by the way uh, John Muir is a good guy did some cool stuff but also. There's issues there as well. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah, I don't, so, I it's funny. I don't I don't know if I ever said he was a good guy. I don't think no. he was necessarily a, yeah, but <laughs> but the well the whole discussion around John Muir and how much time to spend on that period was a big one that we had. Yeah. And at the very least I think that their discussions worth having and I think that I think they're discussions worth having about a lot of this stuff, especially if we're going to talk about, like I mentioned, growth, like I mentioned, um, you know, what are our motivations pushing us forward? And that – is it profit? Is it like what profit you can squeeze from certain pieces of land? Is it like – I think that these are a lot of bigger these are part of bigger discussions that we're being forced to have now because of in part because of climate change because of certain resource issues because of the implications of using fossil fuels and I think that they're worth having, and much smarter people than i have have been able to address them in like much clearer ways, and so it's something that I'm thinking a lot about and and working yeah. through for sure, and um you know. If I do another season of anything, I definitely would like to get into it a bit more because I think it's part of the conversation that when we talk about climate and these sorts of issues that we, we aren't really oftentimes aren't really having outside of circles of people that like to think about this kind of stuff. And I don't quite know how you bring it to a quote unquote, a general audience or people that just don't have kind of the, the desire to dive deep and, um, you know, no shade to them. Like people have shit to do, you know, people <laughs> have lives they are leading and people are yep. worried about putting food on the table. Like the world's a tough place. And I also understand why some people can't live in that headspace. And so this is all stuff that I think about all the time that I would like to figure out how to translate in an interesting kind of story filled way. And we touched yeah. on it briefly in the show, but I would love to kind of return to it again and again. Um, mm-hmm. Cause it's, yeah, it's important. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. No, yeah. You can't have these conversations unless you have food on the table. Right. It's not like, yeah, there's priorities in life and survival is number one. So it's, yeah. Uh, I
0: had, I had a, I think this is actually like a really interesting thing for people within the science community, science comm community too. Is like, I had a discussion with this one guy. You're doing this like panel or something. And I asked him, I said, what do you think when it's 115 degrees outside? Because for me, I think about an increased number of those days. I think about a lack of air conditioning for the most vulnerable Americans and everybody else around the world and like death and all this. I think about all this. I spiral into all the, all the stuff. And I asked him because that, well, that's my, I have to admit that's my job as well. But I asked him like, what do you, what do you think when it's 115 degrees? And he's like that I need to turn on the air conditioning. And I'm like, Fair, like you know, okay. So, how do I make this story appealing to you? And so that's right. I think about that guy a lot. Like I think about <laughs> that guy a lot because I think a lot of people are like that and feel that way. Like I said, like because they have stuff going on. Everyone has. Stuff you
1: can't going be on. bothered to know everything about everything. You can't be bothered to learn mm-hmm. everything, right? Like there's, you got to prioritize. And yeah, no, absolutely. You're mm-hmm. not going to get everybody, but I, uh, yeah, I think you did a good job of of, of bringing most people in, anyways. So, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: I think it's really, it is really a tough part of talking about all this stuff for, I understand, especially for a lot of the people that live it all the time. And I felt this a lot with talking to, um, you know, both academics, people in the policy world with indigenous people that are in all of those worlds that are doing this, have been talking about this forever. Like you get, you can feel the frustration, like for sure. And, um, you know, (laughs) If that one person figures out how to break through to everyone, you know, I'll, I'll be excited to see it.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So, I, I, I do have, I, I have a couple more questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and this one is one that I haven't touched on at all ever. Um, and I don't know why, but it's a, it's an interesting topic that you brought up during the show um, about accountability. When it comes to fire, accountability in the context of like utilities, right? Like, like poorly kept Mm -hmm. utility lines causing wildfires that burn down communities and and people die from it. Um, How do you hold people accountable? I guess I could speak maybe to a little bit to the
0: broader concept. And I think that if we're talking accountability and making people whole and kind of how we treat folks, I, I think if there's one of the through lines that you can find between the big one, which is about earthquakes and the big burn, which is about fire, One of the through lines is that I feel like we need to do a better job taking care of people. I think. And that we need to find more empathy for those around us that suffer the most. And so that's my bias. You know, I could approach it from a much different angle, but that's my own personal kind of feeling about the world. And, you know, Mm. what's the point if you're making everything worse for everyone? Um, and, you know, I think it, I think you can get in again, if we're talking about kind of this, It even connects to the concept of wilderness, right? Like what we use the land for and all that sort of stuff. And so you see a lot of people left behind when you report on disaster and you report on climate change. And you can see a lot of the stuff that is going to go wrong and the people that are going to suffer in the future. And you know that they're not going to get taken care of. And a lot of the time for those people, it's a really surprising thing. And it's really – it's sad and it's difficult, and I I often wonder like what our obligation is brought what the obligation of broader society, the government, whatever, what our obligation is to go ahead and help people. I mean, we don't even have universal health care here, so you know, let me know how that is. Uh, <laughs> as I would like to know personally, but um, I think it's a question. It's one of those questions that I think a lot of you know every society's got to whatever ask itself, and I think within the context of disasters and the worsening world of disasters it's you can't bootstrap not everybody can bootstrap themselves you know to a good place yep. and i think that the it's a very problematic american myth and i'm sure it's other places too i only know the context of america but um you know just look at the number of people with disabilities that need help in california that we don't have systems set up to help them in disaster You have no vans to go get people out like they're on their own and they might be completely dependent on machines to survive. I mean, that to me feels extremely callous. And, um, you know, all that's Mm -hmm. all this different stuff and all these different scenarios are floating through my mind when I think about that accountability, when I think about all that. Now let's like put a little positive spin on part of it. Maybe like a little positive, little nugget. Is that like, okay, well there might be some incentive programs that we can, that are in place that people with say with disabilities can access. Now you'd have to ask them if that's enough, if it's enough for everyone, the majority, whatever, you're always going to have edge cases. But, um, you know, I think I inherently default to, I don't want people to suffer.
1: Yeah. So, so so that was probably part of the, that was a big reason for you doing this show, right? Creating, like you, you talked about it in, in some of the beginnings, you talked about it as being, um, a survival guide. Yeah, to, the, to, to this new paradigm of fire, right? Um, so was that for you? That was kind of where this came from. Was the survival guide so that people can could kind of learn a little bit about it and maybe be more prepared?
0: Well, gosh, And talking all this out in this wonderful therapy session, clearly that I've now turned it into, um, <laughs> in talking it out, I mean, we have the very practical survival guide in in the big one, which was the last one about earthquakes. Last podcast I did about earthquakes, it was very, it was even more practical because earthquakes are something that like we rarely ever experience on a large scale here. With fires, it was – I would say the practicality. We have, a, we have a couple of very practical episodes that are about prepping or whatever. But a lot of this – the survival guide in, in like the news you can use kind of aspect of it, a lot of it is – especially for fire because we're all living through it so much is like how to even begin processing it all. And I think that's what probably the through line through a lot of the episodes is. is just like how you fucking process these scary <laughs> things that are bigger than you, that are getting worse, that feel bad. Like, how do you find the little nugget of hope, the little nugget of like some sort of promise light at the end of the tunnel? Yeah. And that's what a lot of the journey was also about. And and I found it in some places and didn't in others and like like most of life.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I found myself asking the question about doom and gloom versus hope when I was, Mm -hmm. and, and you, you happened to address it in the last episode. Um, but I do find there's always, there's always hope, right? And it's, but I think it's important Mm -hmm. to point out the doom and gloom as well to, and then, you know, educate and then show, okay, but there's this. I wanted to know for you, um, and it doesn't have to be necessarily hopeful. It can be whatever, whatever comes to mind, but, What was the most impactful moment for you during this whole investigation? I mean,
0: I'll, I'll have to default. The moment I would have to default to is obviously is talking to my son about the way the world is and the way he sees it. And that comes at the end of the series and, um, truly like unprompt his, I've never heard him give that answer that he gives at the end before. And that was quite heavy and profound and. Like enlightening and if i'm if I'm not biased towards my kid, if I'm gonna put my biases <laughs> towards my kid aside, I would say that you know going out on the fire, the prescribed burn was pretty a pretty profound moment, as well as and so was doing the interviews for the first episode. um People yeah. shared a lot of really heavy and intense stuff, and I feel honored to have gotten to tell their stories and mm-hmm. It was a lot for a lot of people, I think,
1: yeah. Absolutely. Well, it's funny that you say that about your son too. Um, uh, I actually just listened to the last episode today because it only came out last week and it's fresh in my mind. <laughs> at the very end where you just, you're kind of chatting to your, what, a four year old son, right? Yeah. And about his, his ideas around this stuff and, uh, why was it important to you to include your son's messaging in there and his personal thoughts around this? You know, he's a four year old; he's he's thinking about he's just curious, mm-hmm. right? And and what was the point in in including his his dialogue in there?
0: I mean, the final episode is kind of a it is straight up a therapy episode. We I literally talked yeah. to a therapist, so like, okay, it couldn't be any more on the nose, right? Um, but the initial like how I chose to talk to him. Was before we even – I think before I even knew that I was talking to a therapist, I just took him outside and I sat down with him. And, you know, we just talked about fire and we talked about the stuff he thinks about. This is stuff he's asking me all the time. I just don't usually have him in front of a microphone. Right. And so for people that haven't heard it, he generally – he asks me a lot about – I mean he asked me about like asteroids destroying the dinosaurs. Uh, He asked me about – you know, he just asked me about a lot of big questions. And I think it kind of happens as you get older, you start to observe the world around you and whatever, you have big questions about it. But he's been like that since he was a baby. Like truly, it's, it's, he's been very articulate since a very young age and has had both worries and uh, makes really intense observations. And so, I mean, from a practical standpoint, I knew it would lend itself to some sort of story. It's also highly personal and from a... From a desire to help people standpoint or relate, help people relate standpoint, I think a lot of parents go through that. And we're all, it's hard to, it's hard to avoid fires as you will hear. I don't bring this stuff up with him. He brings up fires because we hear fire trucks or we see smoke clouds. Like that's why he brings it up and you got to explain it. And I don't, that interview with that therapist for me was actually has informed a lot of how I've decided to start to approach stuff with him and like, How to get him to kind of, if he's having a tantrum about something, how to calm down or how to like talk to him about heavy stuff. And I'm sure you think of like you have a two year old, right? Does your two year old ask you about the meaning of life yet?
1: Yeah, yeah, she's three and she's yeah, of yeah. course, constant questions, right? Constant questions. Meaning of life yeah, yeah. hasn't happened yet, but it's yeah, it's constant questions, constant. And you and and you, and you mentioned in the in the show, you mentioned like okay, you, you want you're going to be truthful, you're going to tell them what you can, but you also don't want to terrify them or have them. Yeah. You know, so like you have this you have to be truthful and inspire the you know the intrigue and the mm-hmm. and, and inspire them to ask keep asking more questions and to be interested. But yeah, yeah you also don't want to traumatize them. <laughs> so it's yeah, it's challenging, it's, yeah.
0: But when you're inhaling smoke, when there's big yeah. smoke clouds, for instance, uh people that would know, there's a place called Santa Clarita and it's straight out my window. And in Santa Clarita there's a place called um oh, what is it? It's uh it doesn't matter to literally anyone that's listening to this, but there is <laughs> there's a canyon that always catches on fire straight out this window. That's behind you on my screen right now. Okay. And we see that from our house. Right. And also we're in the flight path of fire uh fire helicopters and fire planes take off. And so it's a constant in our lives during fire season. And so you can't hide it from them. And you got to be honest. And what I will say is that starting to frame things as good fire in a lot of ways, like, I don't think we included this. I think we ended up cutting it, but he asked me like, oh, is that a good fire? Oh, is that Mm -hmm. that? And like, that's... Like that, that's wonderful because if he can go ahead and he can turn it into something where like, oh, there is a positive spin on this. I'm not just going to be afraid. Even if I'm breathing a little bit of smoke, I know, hey, like this, there's a positive part of it. Like, I think that little bit of hope for him to hold on to is also really important. And for me and for my wife and all that stuff. In the meantime, we'll protect him. We'll have the air purifiers and all that kind of stuff, obviously. But, um, but you know, the framing helps Uh, a lot of life is about framing, I guess. Yeah. Really. Whether you want them to, they're going to notice all this stuff.
1: Absolutely, yeah.
0: And my the way that my wife and I think about it is like, how do we give them the tools? How do how do we help them process it? And How do we give them the tools for them to process and feel safe on on their own? And exactly, we talk about that constantly. And sometimes we screw up, and sometimes we, and a lot of time, hopefully, we get it right. And yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah. But I found it. I think it was a great way to end the end the season. And I I thought I, I felt like it was. It was uh, it was both hopeful, but also just kind of a breath of fresh air, <laughs> you know, kind of being like, "Oh right, you can think about things in very simple ways," like the way your son did at the end of that show. And people will have to listen to f- hear what what he said, but it yeah. it was it was interesting, and it was it was a great way to end it. In that we I, don't have to be so serious all the time. Sometimes we can just think simply about things.
0: I mean, I also think the episode's a lot about like a lot of us are just. It's okay to be worried. It's okay if you take a second. And you realize that you're feeling overwhelmed by a lot of the stuff, you know, mm. and that's why we did the breathing with her in the episode. It's a little cheesy and we said it's a little cheesy, but I was like, you know, like I actually liked it and I enjoyed doing it during the conversation. And we did like a little, you know, classic therapy breathing, like meditative breathing and, and it helped. And that basic stuff helps. And what I will say to everybody, what I would like, if I could end on something generally right now, like I would say that like. For everyone that lives in this space all the time, just as I do, like it is a lot to live with constantly and it's a lot yeah. to think these big scare about these big scary things all the time. And mm-hmm. it is worth taking a second and taking a step back and yes. really just appreciating like maybe it's the work that you've done. It's a family you have something like that. Maybe it's just a walk in the woods. Um like you know, everyone should be kind to themselves and gentle. It's like it's tough. A lot of this stuff is really tough. Is yeah. how I really feel about it.
1: Yeah, it, it was great. It was great, and I think you, you did a good job of explaining and going through all of your emotions throughout it. I felt I felt very much like I was in your mind through a lot of it. and that, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> I'm no, so it, sorry. In, in a good way. In a good way, because it, it felt like I was going with you on this journey, on this experience, on this emotional roller coaster of learning, and um. It it was great. It was just really really good. I really encourage anybody listening to go and check out the Big Burn. It's really 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 entertaining, very Thank you so much. insightful. And um, yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on here today and talk to me because I think it was we were able to talk about some stuff that um you weren't able to get into in the show, like the science communication yeah. stuff. And uh, yeah, I appreciate it. It was really good. I learned learned a bunch today. Thank you.
0: Yeah, of course. And if anybody out there uh loves to communicate science and has questions or anything, you know, um I'm always happy after the earthquake podcast, we ended up talking to, like I said, a lot of government people and whatnot about communicating around this kind of stuff. And so if I could offer insight to anyone, um for my like journalism journalistic side, I'm always happy to happy to do that. People can reach out. My my email and everything I think is on my Twitter, which is just Jacob Margolis. So There you go. Always happy to help science folks any way I can. Yeah. And you know what? I just, I also really just appreciate your kind words about the show. So thank you. And I I hope other people, I hope if people are feeling overwhelmed by some of this stuff too, is kind of one of my big feel, my big hopes for this is that they also can kind of come to a place of maybe even starting to process their own thoughts and feelings about it. And, uh, yeah, yeah, it's a lot of
1: feeling. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. I feel like Jacob did such a great job as I said several times, but I really appreciated his ability to step into his own emotions and his own feelings around this and to I think it makes it real, right? It makes it you're more able to see where someone's coming from and maybe step into their shoes a little bit more when someone explains it vulnerably the way Jacob has right and 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 of course the people that shared their stories on his show are, you know a lot of the reason for him being able to do that I'm sure and yeah it was a great conversation thank you Jacob for your time and for such a great show I really want everyone out there to go out and check out the Big Burn excellent show they're like 30 minute episodes I think so good um, yeah thanks a lot catch you next year take it easy